If you do have a Bible with you, go ahead and, and turn it to Mark 16. Uh, you'll want to follow along this morning just because there's a, a, a two verses toward the end that I really want you to lay your eyes on. So make sure you have it either in your phone or whatever. Uh, Mark 16, we're going to look at 14 through 20. And uh, fittingly, we already sang the hymn, Because He Lives. That's what I want to call this, this message. And uh, I, I think... Um, when I reflect on Easter messages, a lot of times uh, there's a lot of extra hoopla, hoopla around Easter um, between, uh, the, uh, between Easter eggs and egg drops and all these events. The, the church really gets distracted and needs to get back to the basics of what the resurrection means. And so I intend to, to do that with us this morning. So let's read that text and I'll pray. Mark 16, 14 through 20. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we thank you that you, uh, in your sovereign wisdom and your sovereign plan, that you sent your Son, Jesus, to be crucified for our sins. We are also grateful that you saw fit to raise him from the dead on that early Sunday morning. We thank you that in your loving kindness you have brought us near to you and your Son by the power of your Holy Spirit. And oh, what a power he is to bring Christ from the dead. And you re rejoice this day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, each year on this particular day, billions, we can say billions, uh, billions of Christians worldwide celebrate the fact that Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was once dead, was raised from the dead. This was not necessarily some out-of-the-blue scenario, totally unhitched from history, totally unhitched from theology. Uh, the Jews, of course, back then, and they had always held to the doctrine of resurrection, and thus they had some expectations about it. When you think of Bible passages in the Old Testament that reference a resurrection, Daniel 12.2 is one of the key texts. Um, but that's inside the Bible, in the Old Testament specifically. Outside the Bible, there were certain apocryphal writings and things that uh, tell us a little bit about what the Jews around that second temple period before the birth of Christ and even after, what they believed about resurrection. So the resurrection itself, the resurrection of all humans, was, for many first century Jewish people, a doctrine that they all knew about, but it wasn't something they had experienced, at least not yet. Uh, their theological belief was at the end of history, everyone at the end of history would be raised, but they didn't really have a category for someone in the middle of history to be raised. That was surprising. So. The doctrine of resurrection, I should add, is not about going to heaven when you die, just so we're clear. That is true, though, that when we do die here in this, on this earth, in history, before the consummation of the cosmos, when everything is wrapped up, 
uh, when, when we do die, those who are in Christ do go to heaven, or what we call paradise, what Jesus called paradise. But resurrection, though, contrary to that, is, as one theologian put it, life after life after death. Resurrection is life after life after death. So, death now, heaven, uh, absent from the body, present with the Lord language. And then what happens, though, after that life after death? That's resurrection life. That's when all everyone's raised, the tombs are emptied, everything is, everyone is raised, uh, everyone in Christ and not in Christ. They are judged accordingly, and then the righteous inherit the fullness of the new heavens and new earth. So that's, that's the picture of Revelation, the end of Revelation specifically. So the, the resurrection itself, the great resurrection, when we speak of humans being raised, comes when death is defeated. And death is the last enemy on Christ's conquering to-do list. That's uh, 1 Corinthians 15. So resurrection itself, though, is more than a doctrine to believe. It's a doctrine to live within. It's more than just a doctrine to believe. It's a doctrine to live within. In many regards, it's a doctrine to obey. So a lot of times we just sort of drive a wedge between, oh yeah, I believe that about God, I believe that about the Bible, and then it's sort of divorced from your Monday through Saturday. So resurrection isn't just something we should believe in, it's something that we should obey, and I'm going to explain what I mean by that. Because Christ lives, there are global ramifications. Because Christ is no longer dead, things are, in fact, quite different. So the, the, the resurrection means, and I'm going to say this like three different times in three different ways because I really want to drive this home, but the resurrection means that the world is no longer permitted to be governed by autonomous men who are conspiring together against Christ and his kingdom. That's what Easter morning is all about. That's what resurrection is all about. The world is no longer permitted to be governed by evil men autonomously seeking to suppress and oppress and subvert Christ and his kingdom. And as we saw on Good Friday, at the cross, the powers and the principalities have been vanquished and disbanded. And because Christ is risen, there's no going back. There's no going back. Once you've been delivered from Egypt, there's no going back to bondage. Once, you, once Christ has captured your life, there's no, there's no going your own way. All right, I'm going to uh, pick up on a C.S. Lewis quote at the very end, and uh, it, it's fitting for this. When Christ has captured you with resurrection power, his Holy Spirit inside of you, there's no going your own way. You don't, if you want to go your own way, your life will be miserable. It will be absolutely miserable. Romans 6.11 says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, so because he lives, there's work to do. Consider yourself dead in Christ and alive in Christ. His death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. You've been raised. Now you have the deposit of the Holy Spirit. You've been raised. You're seated with Christ right now. We as the church are ruling and reigning with Christ. So we need to consider ourselves dead to Christ, excuse me, dead to sin, dead in Christ, and alive to righteousness, alive in Christ. So today I want to look at Mark's post-resurrection account and uh, see what the Bible might surprise us with today. So let's look at your text again. I'm going to read it and just to refresh ourselves. Mark 16, verse 14. After he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, 
because they had not believed those whom, who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So Mark's, just to give you a quick, uh, quick analysis, Mark's gospel is super fast-paced. It's very fast-paced, so fast-paced that we don't even get a birth story at the very beginning. Mark is the one—John doesn't either. John goes all the way back to the beginning of time. But Matthew and Luke are the only ones that give us a birth story. Mark has—just doesn't want to do that, apparently. So we're, still, we're told right from the very start that Jesus, after he was baptized by John, he came announcing the imminent arrival of the kingdom of God. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Mark— and the very first chapter, those are Jesus' exact and very first words. I'll read them in a second. Often throughout his gospel, Mark uses the word immediately. If you're reading it, you'll, you'll see the word immediately come often. And immediately Jesus went out into the wilderness. And immediately this happened. Immediately. For whatever reason, Mark has, has a story to tell and he only needs 16 chapters. Um, so he's, he's moving along very quickly. So he's, ra he's rapidly going from story to story, weaving together in this beautiful tapestry the story of Jesus. And in order to set the tone right, from the very beginning, Mark tells us what Jesus says first, which means that that's the focus of his account. The very first words in Mark's account of Jesus are this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. First words of Jesus. So it means something. He's, that's the tone for the whole thing. Now, near the end of the gospel, he's moving. All the writers have this bookend. They love writing. Um, they call it a, a chiasm, a chiastic structure where, you know, they'll kind of like drill down in one angle, and then it'll kind of come back. Uh, they're telling a, a narrative and a story in a certain way. So he's moving towards the bookend, and Mark slows down toward the end. He discusses the events of Good Friday. And so by the end of Mark 15, Jesus has been buried after a proper anointment. And then we go to chapter 16, the, the very last chapter, and it turns a quick corner. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome were, uh, uh, Salome, some say, went to the tomb. Uh, went to the tomb, excuse me, for further burial procedures. So they arrived at sunrise. They went to go and they needed to get into the tomb for another, uh, usually what they would do is they would lay the body on a sort of a, 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 a cold slab and it would have been wrapped and they would have um, put more in, um, oils or fragrances or those types of things to help, help make the body smell better than it would after decaying. So they went at sunrise they, they're unsure who's going to roll the stone away. Curiously, the very large stone was already rolled back. That's in verse 4. Going to the tomb, they find a young man sitting there dressed in a white robe. And of course, Mark is quick to tell us that they were alarmed. That's in verse 5. So the young man, we are assuming this to be an angel, by the way, told them that Jesus is not there, that he is risen. Verse 6. 
So they go and they tell the disciples, they go and tell Peter, trembling, astonished, and afraid of what had taken place. John's gospel is interesting because John has Peter and John, the young John, who probably would have been a very young teenager, run to the tomb after hearing this news. And it's so funny when you read John's gospel because John's quick to say, and the young man outran Peter. That was him. He's telling his story. He's like, it's like a little jab, like, yeah, we ran, I got there first. <laughs> which, which is to be expected given that John maybe would have been 14 or 15, 16-ish. Uh, he was the youngest of the disciples. So Mark does something too where, um, and they're, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, apparently after the debacle with the Romans who came to arrest Jesus, they all scattered, and Mark embarrassingly, embarrassingly mentions that he ran off naked. <laughs> so that was, we, scholars mostly think that that was him. So the end of Mark is essentially a, a recap in that Jesus appeared to the disciples, he appeared to the eleven, and Mark concludes his gospel by, by basically, in verse 15, giving us his version of the Great Commission that we read in, in Matthew 28. Look at verse 15. It says, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Go into all the world, proclaim. He doesn't say, to uh, um, go, go preach to only the elect or go only preach to whoever you feel like it. Uh, no, we're supposed to go and, and preach to the entire creation, everything. Um, and, and I should also add in that, uh, for whatever reason, we're going to skip down to verse 19, but in the middle there, there's talks of snakes and poison, and people in Kentucky do weird things like that. Uh, n- not what we're supposed to be doing, by the way. Uh, I'm sure there are others in other states, but I don't know why Kentucky popped in mind. Uh, <laughs> probably West Virginia, very close to here. Um, but look down at verse 19 and 20. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So that's where I want to spend the rest of our time here today. We often minimize the resurrection of Jesus by basically giving it an annual hat tip. Uh, we, We just sort of tip of our hat. Ah, yes, that did happen, right? And then we sort of just move on with our lives. Now, to be fair, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. There's a reason for that. But, of course, we commemorate it once a year uh, in conjunction with um, the spring season, Passover, new moons, and those types of things. But Resurrection Sunday oftentimes comes and goes and leaves us yawning and largely unchanged. To, to, To many, it's just another holiday. It's just another holiday. Uh, Because we're so consumed by the idol of of money, we sort of just look at Easter weekend like, oh good, a three-day weekend. This is great. I don't have to, I can get off work Friday, that sort of thing. And so for many people, it's like that. And and obviously that, that would be a problem. Far too many Christians have a breakdown in their theology and in their practice of the faith because they fail to see the connection between the empty tomb and our subsequent calling in the world. We fail to see the connection. The, the meaning of Resurrection Sunday, sometimes called Easter, though of course there are you know, some pag- pagan elements to that whole thing. The meaning of Resurrection Sunday is many things, but for Mark it is one thing in particular. Notice the flow of thought here. Jesus was raised from the dead. A miracle of God, no less. He was raised from the dead. 
And he then tells them to go and preach the gospel of the kingdom to the whole of creation. Now notice, Mark 1, the, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What does he do at the very end? Go preach the kingdom of the gospel. The very thing he preached, that the very thing he accomplished in his death and resurrection, he then at the very end says the same thing. The first and last words of Jesus and Mark are the same thing. Preach the gospel. After the captain has issued his orders, we see in verse 19 that he was, he was taken up into heaven. And the first thing he does, the first thing that Jesus does when he goes back to heaven is sit down at the right hand of the Father. Now don't, uh-oh, <laughs> don't miss that. The first thing that happens. Now we know from Psalm 2, if you remember Psalm 2, that he asked the Father for the nations. All right, he asked the Father for the nation. Greg Bonson famously said, do you think he forgot to ask? No, he didn't. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. He looked to the Father and said, the nations, please. And guess what the Father said? Yes, absolutely. But what does Mark say next? Having explained that Jesus is no longer dead and that he is seated at the throne of heaven at the right hand of the Father, which, by the way, the right hand of the Father on the right, that's the seat of power. That's the seat of unending legislative authority in the universe. There's a reason the Bible emphasizes that. Sitting there, what happens next, though, as a result of these astounding propositions? He tells them to preach. He goes to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father. What next? Look at verse 16. And they went out and preached everywhere. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them. Do you see that here in the text? Jesus is alive. He's seated on the throne. And we know from Matthew 28 that all power and authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He possesses all power. And the people of God, as a result of this certain and guaranteed truth, are then told to get to work. Fascinating. Because he, because he lives, we go and preach the inexorable victory of Christ everywhere everywhere because he lives he's seated at the right hand we go and we preach the inexorable victory of christ everywhere think of it like this i'm going to pose a couple questions what might it mean that death no longer has the power that it once had think about human history right the stat 10 out of 10 people die annually okay no one escapes that but one person did what might it mean that death no longer in history has, it no longer has the power that it once had? Or think about it this way. What does it mean that Jesus is not dead anymore, that he conquered and extinguished the power of death? And I'll tell you what it means. I'll tell you what it means. It means that there is no power, there is no idolatry, there is no sin that can squash or upend the glory of God. There is nothing, no power, no earthly power, no, no mandate from a governor, no edict from on high in the White House. Nothing can squash the power and the glory of God. So death and the evil men who wielded its power by putting Jesus to death had been consumed and they had been disarmed. They had been disarmed. That's what the empty tomb is. Jesus drank death down to the dregs, exhausting its power and rendering it completely impotent. 
Jesus broke the neck of death. That's what the resurrection is. Jesus broke the neck of death. The empty tomb means that the new creation has burst forth into the world and the new working reality, the new paradigm for history and gospel ministry is a crucified but risen Savior who intends to save the world. And now I, I, I really do applaud this. You got to appreciate Mark's gospel for what it is. I, I really applaud the simplicity of his comments here. It's just so straightforward in, in nine, verses 19 and 20. Jesus went to heaven as a result of this coronation ceremony. Christians are to preach the, the victory of Christ in a cold, dark world. That's what we're supposed to do. Um, it's, it's just astounding to me. Uh, the church has been baptized into this family, right? You've been baptized into this family. And the only way out of slavery, the only way out of it is, is freedom from the, in the liberating waters of baptism. That's a symbol of Christ's death and resurrection. So that's, for all of you here, that's what your baptism means. Do you remember the day you were baptized? Maybe you were a baby and you don't remember. But your parents have been telling you you've been baptized. This is what this means. A, a reminder. You are in Christ. You've been, you, you were crucified with him. You were buried with him. You were raised with him. That's what you're bat- You've been brought out of bondage. So that's what it means. That's it. That's what we're called to do, to go and preach, to, to see people liberated by the gospel. And the Lord will be with us each step of the way as we take the land. Which means, of course, there is no excuse for not doing this. There's no excuse to spend 20, 30, or 40 years in a church never proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to a single person. I've met them. I've known people who've been in the church 50, 60 years of their life. They have not once proclaimed the gospel to a single person. I, <laughs> I've gone almost 40 years now of my life without a single person ever sharing the gospel with me, aside from growing up in the church and hearing it preached. Never on the street, never, never in conversation with you know, strangers or people that you meet along the way in life. Not once. Uh, my friend Ron and I lament that all the time. He, 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 especially when Christians come up with like an abortion mill or, or a place, and, and uh, you know, we, I've been in those conversations and, and said, why don't you preach the gospel to me? How do you know I'm a Christian? Why aren't you preaching to me. Uh, I wasn't taught that Christ, for most of my life, I wasn't taught that Christ has the authority and power to tell Caesar what to do. I was never taught that. I wasn't taught that God had ordained the civil magistrate for a very, very specific and small job and task. And I wasn't taught that when the magistrate steps out of line, and goes out of his lane, that the church is supposed to be there to rebuke him for it. I wasn't taught that the resurrection and the ascension of Christ is the very thing that moves us out into the world as agents of change and renovation. I was never taught that. Think of the heaping mess that we're in right now as the civil magistrate has decided to become our primary care physician. That's a result of failing to proclaim the inexhaustible power and authority of King Jesus. That's what it is. But that's what the Bible tells us over and over again. The Bible emphasizes the authority and power of Christ as King right now and not some distant future. 
So the coronation ceremony is finished. It's all done. The coronation ceremony of Christ's ascendancy to the kingdom is done. It's already happened. Mark told us about it. Christ's ascension was his ascension to the throne. It's, it's already happened. We're not waiting for Jesus to be king. He has been established as king. And because that's already happened, we're supposed to go out and preach with confidence everywhere, the whole of creation. And, and honestly, I'm afraid of that until the church stops doing Easter egg helicopter drops and recaptures this vision of these two very, very simple verses, the world around us is going to go on unchanged. Because here's the deal. God, listen carefully, God told the whale to spit Jonah up onto land. Right? Remember that story. God told the whale to do that. The great fish. God told death to spit Jesus up out of the grave. See the connection? And God will tell all of creation and is telling all of creation to seize all idolatry, to seize all rebellion, and not, listen, not a single grain of sand will fail to heed his command. And why is that? Because a risen Messiah is a conquering Messiah. A risen Messiah is a victorious Messiah. And the basis of our faith is the revelation of God in Christ and his law word, the Bible that you have in your hands. And, and what, is, what is that revelation? What does it tell us? Well, it tells us that he, he, he has told us that death, death itself, the very thing that we humans could never over, overcome, Death, the very thing that we humans have brought to the table, thanks to our rebellion, right? Death itself has been defeated. The power of sin has been broken. The cross and the empty tomb are two signposts that declare the truth that God will in fact win the day. King Jesus is inevitable. King Jesus is inevitable. And because of this truth, because he lives, not only can we face tomorrow, we can face the day after tomorrow and the next day and then the next day after that. And not only can we face those uncertain days, we can categorically face both the good days and the bad days. You can. People who have been lost in depression and despondency are people who have lost resurrection hope. We can face the unsavory tyranny, the cultural dilapidation, the problems and obstacles to true kingdom transformation. It's not as though Jesus told them to go preach to the whole of creation, left them behind, and they just sort of haphazardly tripped over themselves, sort of knuckle-dragging, drooling all over the place like a, like a bunch of Neanderthals, not sure what to do next, and hopefully Jesus will just zap them away so they don't have to deal with it. That's not what he said. He was raised from the dead, but he went somewhere specific. And that specific place means something important for the world. Jesus went to the right hand of the Father, which means that the world is no longer permitted to function on its own autonomous authority. It's just not. All of mankind is no longer permitted to slaughter infants in the womb. All of mankind is no longer permitted to steal, kill, and destroy. Man is no longer permitted. He was never really ultimately permitted to do so anyway. But to rob his neighbor for gain. The cross is the judgment of the world. The cross is where the ruler of this world is cast out. That's John 12. In other words, for example, because he lives, abortion must be abolished. 
Because he lives, justice must be had in the town square. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow because tomorrow I'm going to live my life for the glory of God. Tomorrow I'm going to preach the gospel. Tomorrow I'm going to see to it that the entire world knows that death has been defeated and that somewhere in Jerusalem today sits a tomb that is empty because it could not hold Jesus down. Death could not shackle Jesus, which means that men are not permitted to shackle other men. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. I can face whatever the world throws at me. Because guess what? What is the worst thing the world can throw at you? Death. A a toothless enemy. Christ has stomped on it and defeated it. That enemy being death. Listen to 1 Peter 3, 21 through 22. It says that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Angels, authorities, and powers. Not just in heaven, but on earth. Because he lives, our job is to tell the world about it. And I'm going to end with this C.S. Lewis quote. I want you to hear this because it's really profound. Lewis says, uh, this is in his mere, the last chapter, I think it was the last chapter of um, mere Christianity. He says, The principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death. That's the principle. Submit to death. Death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Listen to this. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself. And you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him everything else thrown in. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice. We rejoice this Resurrection Sunday because you have raised your son from the dead. You have conquered death. And Father, I pray that we would take seriously these two simple verses at the end of Mark. We've been instructed to preach the gospel to the whole of creation. You are, uh, your son is sitting at your right hand, and because of that, we are to go and preach everywhere. We are to proclaim the authority and the jurisdiction of Christ over all things. Father, we thank you that because Jesus lives, we can in fact face tomorrow, whatever tomorrow holds. We don't worry about tomorrow, of course. That's a waste of time. Today has its own troubles, Jesus says. But we trust in you today. We trust that you have promises that you intend to keep. And those promises are the subjugation of the world, the enemies of Christ being a footstool, the glory of God covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. So we invoke those promises, God, and ask you to hold true to them, to help us see it in our day. Father, grant us repentance, grant us faith, and most importantly, grant us boldness. Whatever you have this week, Father, for us. We face it with courage and not timidity. We face it with boldness and wisdom, Father. May your spirit be here among us. May he guide us in Jesus' name. Amen.